This is Dr. Marnie Peterson, and I am the Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Coordinator for a newly launched project focused on antimicrobial stewardship by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. A component of this project are podcasts with global experts in the field of antimicrobial stewardship and antibiotic resistance. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Brad Spelberg about his efforts in leading new approaches to optimizing antibiotic therapy for the future. Dr. Spelberg is Chief Medical Officer at the Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center. He is also a Professor of Clinical Medicine and the Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. His impact on the field of infectious diseases is extensive. First as a clinician and antimicrobial steward, also as a researcher in the development of new antimicrobials, and as an author of numerous articles and books. He has worked extensively with the Infectious Diseases Society of America to bring attention to the problems of increasing drug resistance and decreasing new antibiotics. His research regarding new drug development was a cornerstone of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's white paper, Bad Bugs, No Drugs, and has been cited extensively in the medical literature and on Capitol Hill. He first, he first authored numerous articles relating to public policy of antibiotic resistance and antibiotic development. Dr. Spelberg is also the author of Rising Plague, which he wrote to inform and educate the public about the crisis in antibiotic resistance and infections and lack of antibiotic development. Dr. Spelberg, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Spelberg, you have focused your career on the prevention and treatment of infectious diseases, both as a clinician and a researcher. Over the course of your career, you have witnessed firsthand the emergence and now the crisis of antibiotic resistance. It is this crisis that has caused global organizations and government agencies to move towards the implementation of practices such as antibiotic stewardship for improving the appropriate antibiotic use. Based on this current situation, what do you feel this means for the health provider? Well, you know, the, the primary impact that resistance has on the healthcare provider is the inability to treat infections with desirable therapies and having to jury rig up or go to second line or even third line uh, therapies that in some cases are either more toxic than or known to be less effective than alternative regimens when used to treat susceptible pathogens. So for the provider, it's trying to figure out how to treat your patient when the weapons you used to be able to use are not, not effective anymore. But I also think that it's important to recognize that the discussion or the national dialogue around antibiotic stewardship is not, in fact, new. It's 80 years old. Uh, you know, the man who discovered penicillin, Fleming himself, warned the public in 1945 that we were wasting penicillin and that the outcome of it was uh, the outcome of the wastage was going to be to breed penicillin resistant bacteria which were going to kill people and you know we we really as a society have played lip service to the importance of stewardship for a long time and i don't actually personally believe that there's been much more than lip service even recently we can make hospitals have stewardship programs that doesn't mean they're going to work we made hospitals have infection prevention programs for decades that didn't work. And it wasn't until we took serious societal steps at the national level, not at the local level, at the national level, 
that we really began to see declines in hospital-acquired infections. Until we get to that stage with stewardship, it is going to remain lip service, in my opinion. So so we're more in, in a reactive situation right now with the crisis that is occurring with antibiotic resistance, which has caused governmental agencies to move towards implementation of antimicrobial stewardship programs. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about the potential tension that that could create between these government entities and, and, and the practitioners that are uh, deploying the antibiotic stewardship programs and the overall individual clinicians? I don't think there's any tension at all between the national entities and individual clinicians. The national entities are so far removed from individual clinicians that their clinicians aren't going to be affected at all by national entities. The requirement to implement stewardship programs is not going to affect – it's going to barely affect typical practicing physicians. Because what, what's going to happen at most hospitals, absent external forces that focus on performance rather than the process of implementation, is that people are going to put ineffective programs into place. The real tension that underlies antibiotic stewardship, which is the reason why stewardship is so difficult to do, and the reason why relying on local tactics to solve the problem ultimately fails, has failed for 75 years and will continue to fail, is that you are attempting to control the behavior of extremely intelligent, highly trained people who have, you know, very, who are typically very self-confident and know what they're doing. They don't want to be told how to prescribe antibiotics, right? How dare you tell me how to practice medicine? That's the typical response. The righteous indignation I get when I talk to people, when I, as the infectious disease specialist, say, you know, you can't, you, we really don't want you to use that. We really need you to use this. The, the level of righteous indignation that you get back is indicative of that tension that you're describing. How dare you not give me the antibiotic that I'm telling you I want? Who are you to tell me what antibiotics I can use? That's the underlying tension inherent in all practice of stewardship. And it's that tension, that, that need to overcome that culture of entitlement is what makes stewardship so difficult and is why local tactics so commonly fail. I think that to that point, there is a requirement of a, almost a paradigm shift in the thinking around antibiotics. And in, in this year, in 2016, you and your colleagues from the Center for Disease Control and the University of California at San Francisco published a Viewpoint article in the Journal of the American Medical Association titled, New Societal Approaches to Empowering Antibiotic Stewardships. And what struck me in reading your article was your discussion around the paradigm shift related to how antibiotics should be viewed as a shared societal trust in that society, all of society has responsibility to protect the use of these drugs. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, um, that paradigm shift and why antibiotics are unique and different from other pharmaceutical agents. Yeah, I think that's actually, honestly, the, the crux of the long-term solution to antibiotic stewardship. <clears throat> if, you, if you look at what makes antibiotics unique and different, not only from all other classes of drugs, but from virtually 
all other technologies is that they lose efficacy in a transmissible manner. So when I take an antibiotic, it affects your future ability to take an antibiotic. When you take an antibiotic, it affects my future grandchildren's ability to take it, the antibiotic. We are all bound together as a society in the need to preserve what is functionally a public trust. Now, if you want to control, you know, antipsychotic use because it's expensive or rheumatology drug use because it's expensive, that, you know, you, you want to control costs. But the rheumatology drugs, the diabetes drugs, the blood pressure drugs, even the cancer drugs, they're going to work as well 200 years from today as they work today. Not so with antibiotics. When we waste them, we are hurting other, everyone else in society. The implication of that for behavioral control to me is very clear, and we have ignored it. We have failed as a society to recognize it. If you say to a provider, we don't want you using Zosin, you don't need pseudomonal coverage, please use ceftriaxone, and they say, how dare you tell me how I should be practicing medicine? The proper response is, no, I have every right to tell you how to practice medicine because you're doing it wrong, and the impact of that is not just to affect you or your patient. It's to affect everyone else in society, and you don't have that right. We as a society have recognized that individuals have the right to self-destruct. If you want to drink yourself into a coma, you have every right to do that, but you're not even allowed to drink one beer while driving or flying a plane or doing surgery because when you do something that affects other people, you no longer have that right. And we have absolutely failed as a society to appreciate that the public trust implications of antibiotics means that we should be able to control how physicians practice medicine with respect to antibiotic usage. Well, and it seems that you almost need to create, perhaps it's from the pub, you know, awareness within the public about the crisis and the situation. And to that end, you author, authored your book, Rising Plague, to inform and educate the public as well. It is important to educate the public because we don't want them demanding antibiotics when antibiotics are not indicated. And the, 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 while, you know, much of the resistance occurs in hospitals, the majority of prescriptions are outpatient and the majority of wastage is outpatient. And actually the majority is in animals, but the majority of human wastage is outpatient. Um, so it's important to try to make, an, uh, you know, allies of the public and make them aware of the severity of the problem so that when they're in the office with the physician and they have a runny nose and a sore throat, they don't demand Augmentin. And that they understand when the doc says, you know, with this, I think this is viral, antibiotics not only aren't going to help you, but they would hurt you. And they would say, okay, I understand that. Just give me some Tylenol and I'll drink some chicken soup. You'd like to, to get them on that same page. Stewardship has very little to do with that, frankly. You know, that's not what stewardship teams in healthcare systems largely do. Mostly stewardship is dealing with providers' behavior. And there it's more about individual autonomy. You know, I've had people tell me, well, if I was at another hospital, you'd definitely give me the Zosin. And I have to say, well, then that's why the other hospital has so much worse resistance rates than we have. You don't have a right to waste a societal trust because you happen to like that drug more. That's what we need to get past. And until we do, all the stewardship programs in the world 
all of the local tactics in the world are not going to fundamentally change behavior. Well, and to that, you know, to that end of the, the the comment that you made about understanding what the practices are from one hospital to the other and the prescribing practice patterns are, in the in your paper you describe the need for transparency and making the data on antibiotic prescribing patterns publicly available. Do you feel that the transparency yeah. will be made available? And well, well so so I'll, let me talk about the rationale first, and then I'll tell you what I think sure. probably will happen. So. You know, there actually is a fair amount of literature uh, over many decades on how um, society can influence the behavior of individuals. How do you change culture? This entitlement to antibiotics is deeply imbued in our culture, both in, you know, among the lay society, but also amongst the medical community. How do you change decades of entitlement? The, the single intervention that has re repeatedly been most effective at altering provider behavior is audit and feedback over and over again across multiple domains of practice, multiple specialties, multiple areas of medicine. Audit and feedback has been demonstrated to allow people to self-correct. Turns out that people and physicians are hyper-competitive, are competitive. So they don't like to be poor performers, and they certainly don't like to be publicly called out as poor performers, and they like being high performers. So the concept is to change this entitlement and the how dare you tell me I can't use OSIN is that you start publicly reporting, well, this hospital and this group in that hospital are using three times more broad-spectrum antibiotics than the national average. And and have that audit and feedback be the basis of self-correction so that the change is not externally imposed. It's internally sort of motivated. The, the CDC has built a module into the NHSN to collect data on hospital-wide usage of antibiotics and is developing the correction methodologies necessary to adjust for disease severity across service lines. I do believe that it is likely, and the National Quality Forum is already endorsing a quality measure around this, and there are some states like the state of California has actually already built this into state Medicaid waiver dollars. There are millions of dollars in waiver dollars now attached starting this year in the state of California related to antibiotic usage. And I do think within a few years, Medicare will likely make it a pay-for-performance measure so that like, you know, counties and CLABSIs that will be publicly reporting our antibiotic usage, and those that, that use the, wisely will get some reward, and that those that abuse and waste are going to receive a financial penalty. This goes one step beyond audit and feedback. This actually begins to, uh, to tie financial mm -hmm. uh, rewards and motivations beyond audit and feedback this is exactly what made finally, after decades of frankly failure, infection prevention work. As I mentioned before, for decades we had requirements that hospitals had to have infection prevention departments, but our hospital-acquired infection rates were through the roof. It was a combination of publicly reporting the data, audit and feedback, and tying those data to financial performance bonuses and penalties 
that led to a remarkable national decline in, in healthcare-associated infections. And I'm pretty sure the same phenomenon will happen with antibiotic usage. We need to move past local tactics. If you don't have a national strategic plan to underpin those local tactics, people just ignore them. Once you have put into the place the framework that aligns the physician's self-interest, the local tactics become how you get, get things done. But if you don't have that framework, if the provider's self-motivation is to defeat, deny, not work, you know, get around, then the local tactics are defeated. And so I think part of the problem is we've gone about this backwards. We need to first get a national strategic framework into place to align the interest of providers and hospitals with the societal need to use less antibiotics. Then the local tactics of stewardship programs will begin to be effective at modulating provider behavior. Yes, having that foundation in place um, and then allowing the local hospitals and institutions allow allow them to then carry out the the practice and the and the functions. Um, I have you know antibiotic consumption, as we know, drives antibiotic resistance. Do you think that some of these um, initiatives and implementations of these practices could ever lead to the underutilization of antimicrobials? I am less worried about underutilization. I do recognize, you know, it's frankly already true that sometimes docs make mistakes and don't treat something with what they should have treated them with. <clears throat> I think the big thing that drives underutilization is rising resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, as resistance rates rise, things that used to work no longer do. And it takes us takes medical practice a while to catch up, and it puts us in very difficult positions. When I have ESBLs exploding in the community, and I can't use quinolones for UTI anymore, <clears throat> or a pyelonephritis, then I'm still, you know, does that mean I have to put everybody on a carbapenem? And I'm very uncomfortable with that. That's going to make my carbapenem resistance rates go through the roof. So the thing that most drives undertreatment is rising resistance. Right. And to the extent that controlling our antibiotic use slows resistance, I think that that reduction in emergence of resistance will counterbalance the tendency to undertreat. Exactly. In the in the manuscript, you also called for other changes uh, related to antimicrobial stewardship, and that was to incorporate these principles into the regulatory approval process for new antibiotics, as well as incorporating these principles into national treatment guidelines. You are also a researcher, in addition to being a clinician, that is involved in the development of new antimicrobials. So I was hoping you could describe the types of changes in the regulatory approval process that you feel need to occur. Absolutely. Uh, let, me, let me start by giving an overview of why, and then let me talk through the national guidelines, which are easy, and then we'll talk about the regulatory. It is a, to me, sad and astonishing reality that most people have not stopped to think about, but is absolutely true, that our government and our societies have inadvertently, and, I, and it is inadvertent, inadvertently suborned inappropriate antibiotic usage. They have inadvertently encouraged excess and inappropriate antibiotic usage. How? If in the National Treatment Guidelines for a Disease, you say that fluoroquinolones or zosin are first-line options to treat diseases caused by strep 
or staff because they've been shown to be safe and effective, you have suborned inappropriate antibiotic usage. Unlike every other class of drugs, and this is a side effect of the uniqueness of the transmissibility of resistance, like we talked about already, the societal trust nature of these drugs, unlike every other class of drugs, safety and efficacy is not enough to define first-line antibiotic therapy. Spectrum of activity must be taken into consideration. It is inappropriate to use a drug that can kill Pseudomonas or Acinetobacter against organisms that penicillin will kill. That is like dropping an atom bomb on an ant. That is how resistance occurs to the drugs that we need to preserve for patients we have limited options for. So in the national guidelines, historically, they have followed what has been shown in trials to be safe and effective. And they have not considered spectrum of activity. That handcuffs the ability of the local stewardship team. When you go to a surgeon and say, don't use Levaquin for this patient's pneumonia, or don't use Levaquin for that patient's cellulitis, don't use Zosin for this patient's cellulitis, and they say, well, I am going to use it, and it's in the national treatment guidelines, and you can't stop me. There's not very much you can say in return. The guidelines need to change to recognize the reality that the way we define first-line options for antibiotics must incorporate spectrum of activity to preserve broader spectrum agents for patients who need them so we don't waste those very valuable drugs on very common infections caused by much less resistant bacteria. That should happen across all stewardship guidelines, I'm sorry, all antibiotic usage guidelines for all disease types. That's not a hard fix, but it is going to take time. And first, it's going to take the guideline committees to agree that we should do this. Once that's done, then they're going to have to rewrite the guidelines. It will take some years for it to be incorporated. But I don't think it's politically hard to do that. It's pretty rational to ask. Nobody's ever asked before. There's never been a dialogue about this before, but it drives me nuts when I look at the guidelines and it says, well, if you want to treat community-acquired pneumonia, go ahead and use Levaquin. I should be using Levaquin for Klebsiella or pseudomonal pneumonia, not for pneumococcal pneumonia, which penicillin will work for. The more complex political situation is at the level of the FDA. <clears throat> when we license drugs, we license them by individual types of infections. That is, when the FDA approves drugs, they're approved for individual types of infections. And they're approved based on safety and efficacy. So if a company wants to get a drug approved for a large market, what does it do in 2016? It does a trial for skin and soft tissue infection. That's the easiest trial right now to do because the FDA has made other trial pathways so difficult. That's why we've had the market get flooded with MRSA skin drugs of which we need none. We don't need any more MRSA skin drugs, but that's all we get because the FDA has made that trial pathway easy to conduct. Furthermore, by statute, the FDA is supposed to approve the drug based on the type of trial done. And so it is legitimately probably true that the FDA would not be able to say, well, you have a broad-spectrum drug. It does hit MRSA, but it also hits pseudomonas. So I'm not going to approve you to treat skin infections because I don't want you to market it for skin infections. That's the Achilles heel here. Once the drug is approved 
for that indication, the company markets it for that indication, and marketing drives clinical use. That is a reality. That is why companies spend way more money every year on marketing than R&D. If we don't choke off overusage at the point of approval, we are encouraging overuse. If we allow companies to get drugs licensed for broad-spectrum use for staph and skin inf and strep infections, for drugs that have gram-negative activity, then we are encouraging overuse. We are allowing companies to market drugs for inappropriate use. This likely would require statutory change to say to the FDA, no, society has come to recognize that antibiotics are different than every other class of drug you deal with. They're the only drugs that have transmissible loss of efficacy. They're the only drugs that are a public trust. You need to take into consideration spectrum of activity and alternative therapies already on the market before you indicate a drug. We don't want broad-spectrum indications for drugs that need to be preserved for patients with highly resistant pathogens. We also, I would like to see thought leaders in this space really talking to the FDA on the advisory committees for approval and in other venues about how important it is not to encourage companies to continue developing staph skin drugs. I have talked to companies who have said to me, well, we could develop a bone infection drug. We think the drug could, could work well in, in bone and prosthetic joints, but we've been told by the agency, nah, that's too hard. Don't do that. Just develop it for skin. Folks, live in the real world with me, please. I don't want any more skin drugs. The FDA is not feeling the pain. They are not at the front lines. They are not in the hospitals. They don't see the need. And it's easier for them to keep shunting companies through the same drug pathways each time so that they have the same trials coming in, rather than having to sit down and think about, how can I help a company get done a bone infection study to meet an unmet need? Those are several of the ways that I think the, regulation, the regulatory approach to antibiotics really need to change. Well, and also if the regulatory approaches change and the company needs to perhaps narrow their spectrum of use or their indication, that could also narrow the total available patient population that would be available to treat. Are there particular incentives that you think would, would come with that so that companies would still be incentivized to, to develop such therapeutic agents and still achieve some return on investment? Yeah, so um, I have to say, and, you know, I'm one of these people that does not shy from saying things that are controversial. So I've developed the firm opinion over the last several years that the future of the for-profit motive for developing, discovering and developing antibiotics is dead. The for-profit motive has failed us. Big companies have gotten out of the business. The small companies that have stepped in have no idea what drugs we need and frankly don't care. Their fate is tied to the one molecule in their portfolio. If that molecule goes under, the company goes under. So they will blow past every stop sign that they have to they will develop yet another commodity skin drug and don't care that we don't need it. The for-profit motive will continue to get worse, right? So every time a new drug is approved, you'll get a decreasing slice of that market. The competition, because there are so many antibiotics on the market, is only going to increase, which means that the slice of your market share is going to decrease, which means the return on investment is going to go down. 
there's no sign that the regulatory steps that have made these trials so hard to do are going to get any easier. So costs are only going to go up. The reality is we're going to need to move to a public-private partnership model, a defense contractor model. And in the defense contractor model, where drugs are developed by either a non-for-profit or are developed by for-profit companies, but with R&D costs underwritten by grants and contracts from other sources, you can begin to look at smaller market drugs. It turns out that the primary driver of the net present value calculation that underpins drug development is not future revenue. It's upfront costs and time because of a phenomenon called economic discounting. Future money is inherently worth less than money in hand today. So when you model things out, if you can shorten development time and decrease your upfront costs, even if your future revenues aren't very good, you can end up with a very favorable net present value calculation. So the future of development is not going to be billion-dollar blockbuster drugs for pneumonia. It's going to be drugs that maybe sell 50, 100, 200 million dollars a year, but are not very expensive to develop and don't take long to develop because we've streamlined development and we've underwritten costs with external funding partners. And in that model, the other important thing about that model is that the public gets a say in what drugs get developed. Very much like defense contractors, we don't want companies to develop the next main battle tank and sell them to our enemies. When you look at how defense contracting work is done, it's to meet a federal, federally recognized defense department need. We need to have a say so that they don't have the market get flooded by these useless MRSA skin drugs, which frankly the tragedy is for some of them, if they had been developed for bacteremia, I really needed them. But they just weren't developed that way because no one said that you had to develop them that way. So we're wasting opportunities in development with the current model. And I really do think that in the next 10, 20, 30 years, the model is going to shift increasingly towards a PPP model. It's frankly already shifting. If, you're looking, if you look at the companies left in this space, many of the high-profile companies that are in this space are already in PPP relationships with BARDA or NIAD or IMI. Yep. Well, and just newly announced is the CARBEX program. That's the U.S.-U.K. partnership as well, right. both private and and um, government partnerships within the U.S. and the U.K. So I I agree. It, it appears that it is moving in that direction. It really brings us full circle to what your manuscript was about, and you know, and as things are moving, is this new societal approach to creating this awareness and paradigm shifting of how we view antimicrobials and all of it related to antibiotic stewardship. Well, so I, I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Spellberg, very much for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing your very insightful thoughts related to uh, new approaches for optimizing antibiotic therapy for the future. I think these are, these are it's a lot to think about and um, are very insightful. And importantly, you know, the creating this awareness that antibiotics are a shared global resource and the responsibility to preserve them should be shared by all. Couldn't agree more. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. All right.